Hello, and welcome to a special episode of First Fuel. This week, the Australian Council of Social Service, Australian Industry Group, Energy Efficiency Council and the Property Council of Australia jointly hosted a national summit on energy efficiency and economic recovery. The summit focused on the growing consensus in Australia and around the world that energy efficiency has a crucial role in economic recovery post-COVID-19. It was a great event, featuring discussions with Australia's Chief Scientist, Dr Alan Finkel, the Energy and Environment Ministers from Victoria and New South Wales, Lily D'Ambrosio and Matt Keane, Dr. Cassandra Goldie, Ken Morrison, Alison Rowe, and Tennant Reid. All that and more will be available on the Energy Efficiency Council's YouTube channel very shortly. Indeed, depending on when you listen to this, it may be up already. There will be a link in the show notes either way. But today's episode of First Fuel brings you the conversation that closed the event, my chat with Michael Liebreich. Michael is the founder of Bloomberg New Energy Finance. He's a global leader in the clean energy transition and has spent much of the last year thinking deeply about the role of energy efficiency on our journey to net zero. It was a great chat and one I really enjoyed. I hope you enjoy it too. Welcome back, everybody. And if you're just joining us, I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and it is now my great pleasure to welcome our special international guest for today's summit, Mr. Michael Liebreich. Mr. Liebreich is the founder of New Energy Finance, which was purchased by Bloomberg in 2009. And since then, he's carved out a unique role as a leading global expert on clean energy and transportation, smart infrastructure, technology, climate finance, sustainable development. And I think moving forward, Michael, we need to add energy efficiency to that list in your bio. Um, thanks for getting up early in London and welcome to this little Zoom call I've got going on with me and 700 odd of my closest mates. Fabulous. It's wonderful to be in Australia. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Well, we have to we have to make do at a time when uh, when international travel is a little bit off off the agenda. But we're we're really enjoying staying connected with our with our friends around the globe, Michael. You're here because you're a member of the International Energy Agency's Global Commission for Urgent Action on Energy Efficiency. Uh, the commission released its report last week, but uh, uh, it was formed over a year ago, the commission. Um, so if energy efficiency was a priority requiring urgent action in June last year, what is it now? Well, I mean, I think that the, the answer is it's even more urgent and also even more profound because of the COVID pandemic. Mm. And uh, I was just listening in actually to... Uh, uh, the bulk of the last panel, and you know your panelists are just hitting the nail on the head. It, it, you need the short term; uh, it plays a role in the short term recovery, and you also need the long term plan. Um, I think it was Tenet that made that point. So, uh, yes, I, I, since uh, the commission was founded, um, you know we've been working on the energy efficiency problem, uh, but then it kind of started to get wrapped up in the COP twenty six, and the broader question became: Well, what do we what are we going to do after? The commission was always only set up to do one year. How do you kind of take this payload and put it into other global uh, platforms? And then COVID came along and, of course, supercharged the whole thing um, because it suddenly becomes uh, a piece of the stimulus. And uh, as you know, I've argued that it needs to be actually at the heart of the COVID recovery stimulus programs around the world. Well, we'll get to that, Michael, um, but maybe if we just take a step back and, and, and think back, I know it seems like a long time ago, but to the, the before times, before we were in the midst of a global pandemic, um, uh, you've written recently on the on the state of play before we, we hit the coronavirus. Where, where are we on momentum towards the big ramp up in energy efficiency pre-COVID-19? Well, so I think you're referring to the thing that I wrote at the end of last year, which was... Uh, I, I wrote it for Bloomberg. I still write for Bloomberg, mm. despite having sold the business now uh, over 10 years ago, but I'm still right uh, four times a year. At the end of last year, I wrote a piece called Peak Emissions Are Closer Than You Think, and Here's Why. And of course, I wasn't predicting uh, the COVID pandemic at all. <laughs> what I was saying was that actually, uh, despite the, the zeitgeist amongst people who are concerned about the climate is, you know, it's terrible and you have Greta Thunberg saying, you know, you adults have done nothing uh, and you get these um, sort of disaster scenarios coming out of the IPCC and being referred to around the world as business as usual. Mm. In fact, that's not a good characterization of where we are, uh, apart from the fact that the scenarios we're really on still, you know, catastrophic, but they're not the extreme scenarios. They're kind of the middle scenario, but they're bad enough. Don't get me wrong. But the thing um, that I was, you know, really talking about was progress 
uh, on emissions. And I'll give you um, uh, two statistics which sum that up. If you look at the period 2013 to uh, 2019, global GDP, terrible measure of, of well-being and all sorts of things, but GDP measures jobs quite well, by mm. the way, which is sort of mm. important now. But global GDP grew by 23% IMF figures. And during the same period, emissions only grew by 3%. Mm. Now, the purists will say, oh, but that's not absolute decoupling. We're not getting emissions going down. But, you know, if you want emissions to go down, and we all know they've got to go down a lot by 2030 and completely by 2050 or whatever, um, they first got to peak. They first got to peak. Yep. And I was arguing that they are uh, getting close to peaking. And there are three things driving it. One is coal to gas switching, particularly in the US, where they've got very uh, cheap natural gas. But around the world, we see coal growth has uh, peaked very far from the disaster scenarios, which see it growing by you know five and seven and 10 times this century, which is completely ridiculous. So coal has peaked um, somewhat because of gas. The second thing is renewables. If you look at the curve of the growth of renewables globally, you know, you go back 20 years, renewables, non-hydro renewables were, you know, one or two percent of global electricity supply. Right. Then you go forwards to uh, 10 years ago and they're three percent. And then you can laugh at them and you can sort of say, oh, you know, it's a bit like, you know, in in 20 years ago, you know, they ignored us and then. 10 years ago, they laughed at us. And then they spent 10 years fighting renewables. And, you know, Australia has been on the front lines of that to a large degree. But, you know, in 2019, non-hydro renewables were 11% of the global electricity supply Hmm. from three to 11 in a decade. And the curve, the curvature of that curve, if you look Hmm. at it, 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 it's just striking. Uh, And so this argument was essentially based on uh, you know, coal to gas, renewable energy, and the third one you'll love to hear, of course, uh, and this audience, hopefully, we were all waiting for it. It is um, uh, now. I'm just going to disappoint slightly. I'm going to say energy productivity. I'm totally right? fine it's not with energy that, Michael. efficiency only. <laughs> it's yep. energy productivity. In other words, getting more economic activity out of each bit of energy, and some of that is energy efficiency and some of that is as the as economies grow and they switch to services or they you know use different building materials you know, some of it is sort of pure do you know what i don't care let's take it and in fact i think your mandate uh, and the mandate of this group um in an economic crisis particularly is energy productivity you know we we're now absolutely clear we need that gdp we need those jobs there's no debate about that at the moment. And therefore, we need to do that in an energy efficient way. And as I say, we were making uh, very strong progress. Uh, I was saying we're going to get to peak emissions this decade. And by 2030, maybe you know, we know that climate says we need a decline of 25% for two degrees and 45% uh, for, two, for uh, one and a half degrees. We're not going to get that, in my view at the time. Um, but we were going to get, let's say, a 5 or 10% decline by 2030, which at least would demonstrate that we're on some kind of track. There's an arc. We can bend it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was an optimistic view at the end of last year. Well, of course, um, a lot's happened since then. Um, we have had the coronavirus and we've had a, had a global pandemic and a, a crash in ec- economic activity across nations around the world and across almost every sector. The, the the contribution from the International Energy Agency recently with their sustainable recovery plan is, is telling in the context of, of the the opportunity that you, you just pointed to around peaking emissions. The IEA and the IMF saying, well, if we play our cards right, we can actually peak, mis- peak emissions in, in 2019. Do you think that's a do you think that's a realistic thing and something that we should be targeting? Yeah, I think I, I think it is realistic to hope um, that 2019 was the uh, was the peak global peak of emissions of of CO2 emissions from energy. You know, you've got to be mm. very and mm. maybe methane and some other gases from from energy. Yep. Um, you know, I, I, I don't. I, they didn't speak in that uh, report about um, deforestation, reforestation, mm. land use, some of the other things. We must always remember energy is about seventy percent of the problem. There is this other thirty percent. Um, but you know, when I say we. You know, we can hope. Um, I think it was Paul Romer, uh, the economist, the Nobel laureate, who talked about the sort of 
two ways of hoping. You know, a child can sit there and hope for a good, uh, for a nice Christmas present. That's passive hope. Or there's hope where you hope you can build a good tree house. Mm. Right? You have to, but, the, but that's not passive. That's active. You have to yep. do something to build a good tree house. Um, and um, so I think we've got to be active hopers, active optimists, where we say, you know, it is feasible um, and therefore we will make it happen is what the IEA is saying. Um, so they've done, and this is not the report, this is not the Energy uh, Efficiency uh, Commission report. This is a different report. As I say, the Energy Efficiency Commission is now being sort of, um, is now metastasizing within the IEA and other mm. international bodies, and I'm trying to help that. Yep. Um, uh, but the, this was a report they wrote on sustainable recovery where they really plotted out uh, two potential three-year recovery paths. One, which is very much like the great financial crisis recovery, where emissions dropped by about 1.5%, but they then jumped back by 4.5%, the biggest single growth in emissions in the history of, of, of emissions. Um, and, of course, you know, the, the recovery was uh, very fossil-driven and saw us then have uh, another decade of growth. Uh, but they plot out another route which says, okay, there's this, 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 this you can do, and you may never see then emissions grow above where they were in 2019. In, in 2019. Um, that also maps back to my kind of peak emissions are closer than, we, than you think uh, thesis, because um, if I was saying they would be down by 2030, Clearly, they would be peaking around 2025, something like that. And if you, uh, you've now got a chunk of economic activity removed, and one of your last panelists uh, was making the point that they are not going to just bounce back. We're not going to have a V-shaped recovery. Uh, in fact, we're, we're going to have a permanent loss in certain sectors, a permanent loss of jobs, permanent loss of activity. So you kind of, you know, it's, it's not something to celebrate, no, but COVID does mean um, that there's, a, you know, there's probably going to be a, a few percent that never come back. Um, so if you can kind of lose those and then adjust the curve downwards by investing more in energy efficiency and cruci- crucially also making behaviors like this sticky, you know, in a, in a, mm. in a previous life, maybe you would have persuaded me to fly to Australia to, you know, speak to such an eminent crowd. Um, now you just wouldn't, you know, it'd take a bit more. I hate to say it, take a bit more than this to get me to fly to Australia. <laughs> um, but that's a good thing for the, for the planet, right? That's a good thing for emissions. So, um, so that's the, you know, the, the IEA's green recovery plan. Um, and, you know, governments are signing up to it. They are engaged in it and, uh, and uh, you know, all power to them. Well, look, and I think it's a really important point you make is that um, you nor I are rubbing our hands in, in glee at looking at the the demand destruction that's happened across the uh, the economy over the last over the last uh, several months. Um, it's more about kind of um, looking at a very bad situation and, and and trying to make the best of it. And we do have a problem to solve in terms of restarting the global economy as well as the Australian economy. And if we can if we can tailor our our uh, solutions to that problem to also address some of the other you know, pressing problems that we face and that's something that would seem to be sensible michael well yes and i think this is a unique period and you're absolutely right there is no cause for celebration uh, in the pandemic which continues to you know to rage on and <clears throat> you only have to look at the numbers coming out of india brazil yeah. hopefully not um the some of the southern states in the u.s and so on um but it's it's clearly and by the way you know there are countries that are having a a, a torrid time and we don't even get the statistics because they don't have the ability yeah. to record them so across the developing world africa you know it, we're still in the thick of it and you know it, it's almost it's almost obscene to be thinking about you know the things that it enables and accelerates. Um, but we are where we are, and it does enable and accelerate. Um, there is not an industry in the world that is not asking profound questions. Yep. You can, you know, whether it's real estate, whether it's mining, whether it's obviously the energy sector, whether it's transportation, whether it's retail, whether it's uh, obviously um, uh, how we deliver medical services, how we deliver education, you know, it's all up for grabs this year in a way that just was not the case last year. Uh, and so I think in these periods, of, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost 
going to be like wartime reconstruction of the economy mm. as we come out of this this fearful thing. Uh, and, you know, we will come out, we will emerge. Mm. Um, we don't know whether it's going to take, you know, four months until there's a miracle vaccine that, you know, that you take once and you're done, you can forget about it. Um, or at the other end of the extreme, we will, you know, suffer from flare-ups and we'll be managing it for literally decades because, there's no guarantee that the you know if we, if we want to be the other at the other bookend you can be very pessimistic but at the end of it there will be you know immunity and there will be better management of the uh, of, of the symptoms and uh, and so on um, most likely I think we're going to live with this for uh, probably a, a couple of years is, is would be a, a sensible sort of business plan uh, assumption um, and everything is up for grabs during that period um, and I think that that is an opportunity that people have to take because once once the resolution of the situation becomes clear, it doesn't even have to be completed. But once there once there is a promising vaccine, or once it's clear that we become much better at managing these fearful symptoms uh, and so on, then things are going to suddenly sort of recrystallize, mm-hmm. and we need to make sure they recrystallize. Uh, in a way that is consistent with some of the other public goods, some of the other well-being um, and human progress indicators, um, uh, you know, and obviously this is a kind of a long way around to saying, you know, let's strike while the iron is hot, even though mm. there is a terrible health crisis still ongoing. But this, this, you know, we are in a period where the energy efficiency agenda is just resonating uh, in a way that it just wasn't last year. It just wasn't. Let's, you know, let's be completely honest. But we don't have infinite time, right? Because when when this is resolved, then a lot of people will say, you know, well, thank goodness that's over. And now, you know, buy this cheap flight to uh, Bali and do, you know, and upgrade that car. You've been waiting to get a new car and that bigger apartment beckons. You didn't lose your job. Now is the time to, you know, to do X. So, I mean, people are going to get back to normal, I think, with with frightening rapidity, once they are no longer uh, feared. So you've um, clearly come to the view that energy efficiency has a, a special status when it comes to stimulus spending. Do you want to just unpack for us why that is? Yeah, so I called energy efficiency in the most recent piece that I wrote for Bloomberg, I called it the Swiss army knife mm. of the stimulus spend. Um, and why did I call it that? Well, because um, it does it does three things just really, really well short-term stimulus, right, you, um, you, 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 you get money into the hands of people who have suffered a lot. They've been locked down, so they've got a chunk of their earnings missing. They're maybe in debt. They may be behind on their rent. They may not have been able to buy, you know, the, the presents for their kids that they would normally, you know, uh, be able to afford. And when you get them back to work, and I'm talking about plumbers and sparks and, uh, mm. and, and, and brickies and plasterers, and of course, also you know, architects and technical uh, technical folk, you know, uh, quantity surveyors, and uh, all the people involved in delivering energy efficiency, welders in the industrial energy uh, space. There's uh, you know all, all, all fitters, all of those sorts of people. That likely, if they get money in their pocket, it will have a very rapid multiplier effect in the economy. They'll go out and they'll spend, and they'll spend in their communities. The second thing it does is the long-term multiplier because you're improving the asset base of the economy. And therefore, there's a long-term multiplier effect because uh, you improve the energy efficiency of your housing stock, your commercial buildings, and your industry, and you reduce the import, uh, the, the input costs, or the input costs of your economy. So it's like you've taken the handbrake off, and you finally got the handbrake fixed, now you don't have to drive around with it. Well, you know, that has a long-term multiplier effect. I think maybe in Australia, people's, you know, view is, well, you know, energy is so cheap, and we look at that coal that we export, look at, we've got, you know, but but it's not cheap. You've got some of the most expensive electricity, particularly in the world. So energy efficiency will have a long-term multiplier. And then, of course, the third thing is it's good for the climate. You know, it, this is a good this is a good thing. It will help to bend that that arc, get that peak locked in if we've had it, or get there quickly if we haven't. Um, and so, you know, it's it's good for, you know, people like to talk about polar bears and grandkids, and also, but it's also good for, you know, addressing climate change is good for us. It's good for our 
you know, our own uh, families suffering in, in heat waves. And of course, I was in Australia in November last year, those fearful fires and all those things, they are real. And that issue has not gone away. And so the third thing that energy efficiency does is contribute um, to the, uh, the to addressing climate change. And, you know, just if I might say on that, um, the supply side always grabs all the attention and all all but most of the attention and it sucks the air out of the energy efficiency debate but the numbers show you can't address climate change without addressing the demand side the the path is simply too steep even if you say forget one and a half degrees it's over it's too late which frankly is probably the sensible view we might not want to say that but even if you just say let's really really put our shoulders to the wheel and get to two degrees you're still talking about a 25% reduction in uh, emissions by 2030. And if you do that at the same time as creating jobs for in the developed world and also uh, continuing these tremendous trends towards human well-being in the developing world, you know, education, uh, you know, pulling people out of poverty, inclusion, jobs, you know, health, all those good things that are going on then we need that economic growth. So you need to cut the emissions by 25% in 10 years whilst growing the global economy to provide all the things that we know people need. Mm-hmm. And so you're talking about maybe having to, uh, to reduce emissions on a kind of per unit basis, per unit of economic value add by somewhere around 4 or 5% per year. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I love wind and I love solar. I love them to bits and I love batteries and I love high voltage DC. And you know what? I even love nuclear. If anybody can do it at an effective cost point and manage all the other issues. Mm-hmm. I love all of those things, but the supply side alone won't get you to the trajectories that we need to be on. Mm-hmm. So the third piece of energy efficiency that it helps to address climate change is not a nice to have. It's absolutely core to the journey we need to be on. It's a, it's a fantastic point, and it's a point that uh, we often make. It is, it is as you say, um, virtually impossible from where we stand today to do it on the supply side by itself. No, um, no, let, let's just, let's just you, you've got an extra word in there you don't need. <laughs> it is impossible to get where we need to be on the there supply side. There you go. My, Michael Liebreich, uh, stiffening my spine there, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> it's, in, it's, in, it's impossible um, to it's do not, it. With, it's not physically, but the physics doesn't say. And I have to be careful because I'm always slamming people on Twitter for <laughs> pretending that things are physics that are actually politics. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it is impossible. Let's be clear. Just, you know, a combination of just supply chains, which are kind of like physics to mm-hmm. the politics, mm-hmm. mean that we're not going to get there with supply side only. Which forces it in, is into this messy space of working out how you, you, you drive those efficiency gains in, in discrete sectors of the economy and um because it's not like you can say, just oh is that, is that the time maybe i can't <laughs> how to do it i've given you the pep talk go on uh just do it right no well i was gonna i was gonna pivot to the the commission's report which i, I commend to everybody uh, uh, if, if yes. you if you're interested enough in this topic to uh to dial into a three-hour webinar on it um, you, you could probably derive great benefit um from uh, downloading the, the commission's report which i'm sure my team has dropped in that link into the chat but it is a very um, uh, cogent, um, a very clear, a very compelling, I think, explanation of both the opportunity, which you've outlined, um, Michael, but also the, the, the straightforward and sensible things that governments might do to, to, to take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, so I think we were very lucky in the commission because, um, you know, the, the old adage about standing on the shoulders of giants, mm. and if we've seen further, it's only because of the work that's already been done. Um, because although... Um, you know, energy efficiency may not have been, uh, you know, performing to packed houses on Broadway. You know, it, there was a very healthy off-Broadway sort of scene, and Bye. so there are. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, I actually, um, in, my, in my last piece, I wrote that uh, sometimes, uh, you know, it takes a decade to become an overnight success. <laughs> there has been enormously good work done, whether it's on behavioral uh, challenges to get this stuff done, whether it's finance, um, whether it's the detailed kind of nuts and bolts of policy uh, and so on. So I think to a certain extent, what we could do is just pull all of that together. And there are there are 10 uh, recommendations 
Um, but we didn't have to do original research to get there. That was the good news. We could actually just, um, you know, synthesize. And really, in a way, in a way, I think there's one of the recommendations, which is the sort of the one one ring to rule them all recommendation Mm -hmm. is um, the the, the number 10. I've got it here. It says raise global energy efficiency ambition Mm -hmm. because, you know, just – um, we, we can, you know, we can do what we want on the technocratic level, but at some point it's got to become a thing that, um, you know, that the prime ministers, presidents talk about, that cabinet meetings, cabinet level talks about, uh, and, um, and the leaderships then, you know, across the political sphere, business sphere, investor sphere, et cetera, really uh, adopt, which they, you know, have not done until now. And I think that's part of what the commission was about. There's a key word in our mandate, which was urgent action, two words, Mm. urgent action, not just saying, you know, let's get a bunch of worthy people together and talk about energy efficiency because they can do that all all day long, (laughs) but it's about urgent action. And I think the, the, the single, if you had to, so well, you know, what's the what's the single thing that we need to do? It's raising that ambition, and uh, you know, and, and they've uh, you know getting it sort of built into the top level agendas, and that is critically important because very often energy. So first of all, climate sits somewhere in the environment ministry, which is just not good enough, um, and and then you've got energy efficiency sits within the energy or energy and whatever else is bundled in there around the world in different um, different sort of political um, slicing and dicings. And the problem with um, both of those is that you can't do it without working across ministries. Mm. Right? You, you can't do energy efficiency in agriculture, in the agricultural system, which has got big challenges, without mm. also uh, having the agriculture minister of, you know, whatever he or she is called, um, being involved. The same with housing. You know, housing very often is over in a a different ministry, and so are schools, and Mm. so is, you know, maybe even industry. You might have an industry ministry and an energy ministry. Um, And, um, you know, so you've got to work at these things cross-functionally, which means if there are any prime ministers watching or presidents, you have to bang heads together, and you have to get (laughs) those people cross-functionally to work on this stuff. And that's kind of what the one of the messages of, of the commission. Well, certainly oh, another way of saying what you're pointing to, Michael, is that it's going to take leadership. It's going to take really genuine leadership by, from government. And uh, I remember one of one of your mates and one of my mates, um, uh, Brian Motherway, who heads up energy efficiency at the International Energy Agency, was actually down here for our, for our conference back in 2016. And um, he had this big slide up and it said, you know, Government is crucial. Policy is crucial. We can't you can't unlock the opportunity on the demand side without government being on the field. Doesn't mean you need to regulate everyone to death. Quite the opposite. But it is about establishing those frameworks, establishing the ambition, and and then then backing in the action and activity, which will allow us to meet those targets. Yes, I mean it's you know I, I've got this sort of strange position because I sit and you know, the, the business that I built, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, kind of sits between government, um, big energy companies, the tech space, the investors, uh, civic society, and, and kind of informs them all. So in a way, I'm a kind of mini translation layer between some uh, different groups of stakeholders. Mm. So, you know, if I go to a business audience, then I'll say, don't wait for government. <laughs> Make lots of money, fill your boots. There's enormous opportunity. Or if I'm talking to investors, that I'll say, you know, the time is now. Look at the returns that you can get, and so on. Um, but then, of course, you know, of course, policy is critical, and the answer is they're all critical. Um, you can't do this without policy because, at the end of the day, there is no such thing. If there are any libertarians watching this, any libertarians out there, I'm going to say something you won't like. You know, essentially, governments make markets. They are the ones that police the rules, that create the rules of law. And, of course, in the energy space, they're the ones very uh, uh, intimately involved with creating the rules around uh, the power markets, the energy markets. And I'll give you one example. Um, It is a lot cheaper to store hot water than to store electricity. Mm, Absolutely. So we can uh, enormously benefit from the flexibility offered by smart heating systems in the electricity system, but without a policy engagement that enables thermal flexibility to bid into the electricity markets, 
right? Deregulating who can bid in, allowing aggregation, uh, making it easy to, you know, to, to uh, enter those markets. Without some policy intervention, you're not going to unlock that. And so, yes, policy is key. And I think, you know, the IEA um, probably um, bangs that drum more than me, partly because of their institutional setup. I mean, they mm-hmm. answer to energy ministries around the world. I don't. I interact with them. But there are also cases where I'm going out and talking to entrepreneurs and saying, you know, um, I'm, am I allowed to say JFDI? You know, sort of thing you say to entrepreneurs, they get very excited. But, you know, there are sectors of this where you really don't need um, government or where government will actually have to run to catch up. I mean, a great example is, of course, you know, Elon Musk, um, you know, uh, going off and uh, challenging and getting uh, changes to where you can sell cars because initially you you know you, you had to have showrooms and so you know they've had to sort of scramble to catch up in many states in the U.S. Um, you know that maybe that's the California kind of move fast and break things and then the policymakers will will sort of backfill um, and that's an extreme condition or extreme situation but um, but I think we need everybody working to you know, a better solution is is working together. And that doesn't mean policymakers just sort of bending over and doing you know anything that a business person says if it's going to improve clean energy or energy efficiency. Um, but it just says, you know, let's think a few years ahead. So, for instance, very deep penetration of um, of renewables requires somebody and you know luckily you've got alan finkel who's you know incredibly brilliant at this stuff just thinking about well okay how do you make sure there's a market for flexibility so that when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow the lights don't go out and you know that requires a policy intervention but it has to be the lightest touch possible because if you have the state um, applying its capital to R&D, the state banks then investing in the companies, the state controlling the energy mix, the state controlling the energy price, um, uh, uh, you know, then you're going to get a you know, massively inefficient allocation of capital and poor service. And, you know, the libertarians out there will all be happy now. So <laughs> socialists are less happy. <laughs> we've, got enough, we've got enough track record in, you know, we, so you can't, have, you can't have no involvement of policy in the state, but you can't have over-involvement. And in some ways, that's the key challenge of the energy transitions is how do you get just the right amount? Um, so, and in energy efficiency, you know, you don't want some, you know, local planning department telling you, exactly what you need to do to your home you want people to come and compete and one tries to persuade you of this approach and one says a you know one one says another and so on and then the market is really good at essentially you know establishing the uh you know sorting the bs from the stuff that works um so you need some interventions from policy but but then you know you also have to have faith that business culture. And also the other piece we've not talked about is, you know, the consumers and the consumer culture. It's all very well saying prime ministers need to act, but, you know, you also need a culture in which they can act. Um, And that's sometimes, you know, how can I put it? That's more difficult to establish. You know, politicians, you know, can be very much in reactive mode. Oh, you know, my constituents don't want to hear that. End of story. Well, there's a journey that constituents have to be, or voters have to be taken on, where they have to be educated. And also, there has to be some kind of tribal culture hacking, where politicians will say, look, I may be with this party, but I actually disagree with the positions that we've had in the past. And we now need to have a conversation on X. And over time, political bravery is to lead, not to follow where your constituents are, but actually to nudge them in the direction and you know, maybe to be very brave, but you know, if the nudging is better, um, this, we're in a, you know, 20, 30 year, um, journey. Yep. So, you know, just making some tremendous, you know, uh, over the top lads, you know, um, <laughs> leadership, um, move, we'll get lots and lots of press attention. Oh, how brave, you know, and so on. And then lots of other attention on the other side saying, you know, he's a traitor and he's betrayed and whatever, but actually we need those kind of, smaller steps that's probably the right way to um you know to get this stuff done and, and by the way it doesn't mean appear, 
agreeing with your political opponents. You can knock bits off them, but at least compete in the space that matters to the voters. And we know this stuff matters. Well, there's, a, I think, a 14 points that you've just made that I feel like responding to. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll pick one. No, it's all good. Um, they're, they're all points well made, Michael. Um, I'll pick one, which is that in the current context, in my view at least, you're right about that ecosystem of players that need to come together to drive this transition. But right now, government is more crucial than it's been in my lifetime at least um, to to be on the field and to and to priming the pump and setting the direction for for all of that stuff that inevitably needs to come after no absolutely this is a time when people are looking to government for leadership and they're also they they will accept government uh, intervention on a scale and in areas that you know six months ago would have been unthinkable so you know cities around the world are creating pop-up bike lanes. I mean, if you could, can you imagine any of those cities um, in summer 2019 say, "Oh yeah, well, you know what? We're just going to shut that lane. We're going to do this. And we're going to put some bollards and and what? And you know, can you imagine what car drivers would have done? You know, and I, I know London pretty well, and um, and it wouldn't. It would have been pretty ugly. It would have been ugly. Whereas now, there's sort of you know. And by the way, there's simmering discontent. Uh, in those constituencies around the world at some of the things that are happening, but they are disempowered and disenfranchised at the moment from saying, you know, no, we shouldn't act, government shouldn't do this, government shouldn't do that. That's why I say there's a window of opportunity. Uh, but, you know, we are looking to governments to act and cut to the chase. We are looking to governments to spend money. Yep. You know, the, 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 we are now, uh, you know, any pretense, you know, all these people... You know, Keynesian, uh, um, you know, stimulus, uh, it's very funny because the, the anti-Keynesians all become Keynesians when there's a crisis. <laughs> right? Suddenly there's a crisis. They're like, no, no, spend money. No, me, me, me. I need a little bit of help here. You know, I'm a Keynesian, really, honestly, maybe just temporarily, <laughs> but please. But, of course, the, there, is a, there is a flip side to that, which is the Keynesians all forget that they're Keynesians when things go well. So they're all happy with the intervention during the crisis. But when the crisis is over, they're going, Keynesian, me? No, no, keep the money flowing. Keep the money flowing. So we're in one of those moments where everybody's a Keynesian, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that is part of this kind of magic window. So maybe if we, if we uh, take a step back to the global context again, uh, Michael, and um, yeah, these conversations are going on around the world. There were some very, uh, very uh, august um, individuals, um, prime ministers and, and deputy PMs and, and ministers sort of part of your global commission um, considering considering energy efficiency um, but then we've also seen some of the early thinking emerging from from countries around the world about how they're going to apply that stimulus spending obviously there's a bit of water to go under the bridge and we don't know where exactly it's all going to land but uh, obviously we've identified the opportunity we've said that governments need to need to back it in um, what are the tea leaves saying to you about where, where this conversation is going around the world well so it- in the end, it becomes a discussion that has to be led at the national level, but actually also at the mayoral, the you know, right the way down to the um, subnational levels and and down into the local communities. That's actually one of the challenges is that um, a lot of this stuff has to be done at a very local level. Um, this is not about building vast power stations in the desert. This is about changing uh, the fabric of our of our hard infrastructure, hard assets. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, we we. Um, we see it progressing at different uh, speeds. Um, I think it's fair to say on the energy efficiency agenda, the renovations agenda, the EU is in the and is leading the peloton. Um, so you've got uh, already a discussion that was going on uh, before COVID, which was the European Green Deal discussion uh, and various sort of negotiating stages. And, you know, it, it will make your head explode if I talked you through how it has to go through the commission and then it has to go through parliament and the various stages and then it has to get into national legislatures and then they have to... Yeah, sometimes, sometimes, Michael, when uh, Australians complain about being over-governed, <laughs> I say to them, well, just look at the EU. <laughs> Yes, and I mean, you know, we were supposed to have uh, what was what was it called? Uh, you know, where decisions are made at the at the, the lowest level possible, um, uh, but but that doesn't really happen, and it, and it happens at all. Anyway, it's very complicated. But but that was all started interestingly interestingly enough before COVID. There was 
um, you know, the, the, the timing was right. Because the other thing is, okay, here's what you need to know. The EU does things in seven-year chunks, and a seven-year chunk was coming up anyway, mm-hmm. right? A seven-year sort of budget yeah. cycle was coming up anyway. Um, and so there's a lot of prep work in terms of drafting legislation, in terms of putting plans together, and also the corridor work of getting, you know, Poland to agree and also Portugal and also, you know, uh, you know Germany, who is going to fund, you know, vast chunks of it and so on. Um, so there was a plan. And then um, a lot of the COVID stimulus was just about accelerating. You know, you've got that magic window. Now let's sort of get this thing uh, through as intact as possible. Um, and obviously some of the numbers, we're talking 750 billion euros. Then, no, no, let's do a trillion. And who knows what will come out at the other end of the sausage machine. But at the heart of that is um, uh, energy efficiency and, in particular, really interestingly, renovations. So there's, in the most recent um, drafts, the plan that will probably go through, there's a, a, the, um, the plan to do $350 billion of renovations in that seven-year cycle with €91 billion Euros mm. funded uh, by the EU, the rest of it being then private money that's supposed to be crowded in and so on, but 91 billion euros, um, which is grants and investments around renovations. And then, of course, that will also get supplemented by um, funds at the country level, because you know, nobody, nobody can expect the EU to do everything to, do, to provide all the resources. I mean, maybe some of the very poorer uh, EU countries do. But so we're talking about, you know, we're even, you know, the EU is talking, not just talking about, but putting tens of billions of euros into renovations. I mean, just saying that line alone mm-hmm. a year ago, two years ago, would have been unthinkable. Um, there's also funds for, you know, industrial efficiency. And then they do a whole bunch of stuff around hydrogen, you know, stuff that I love. Again, I love hydrogen to bits, but as a stimulus, it's pretty slow. Right. Because, you know, if you if you suddenly decided to put five billion into hydrogen, you'd probably employ a few hundred lawyers and a few hundred engineers for the next few years. Um, so the renovation stuff is the, is where the money is you know, really going to be uh, hopefully flow quickly and flow well. So that's the EU. Um, the UK going into the election at the end of last year, um, the Conservative Party manifesto included uh, nine billion for renovations of homes and there's a bit of kind of like, well, you know, yes, it's still there, but we can't quite find it in the detailed plans and so on. So there's a little bit of, I, I don't want to, I would never call the UK a laggard, of course, mm. uh, but they are slightly lagging in lagging relative to the EU. Um, and, and then around the world, you see, um, you know, the stimulus plans are at various, a lot of, most of them have, like Australia, done the sort of the rescue bit, but have not yet agreed much in the way of the long-term bill, the phase two. Uh, and then, of course, in the US, great progress at the state level, some very uh, aggressive uh, goals and targets. <clears throat> but, you know, the states only have modest resources. And at the federal level, um, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see. Uh, there's the presidential election in November. And depending on who wins, um, it, you, it will probably, you know, take a couple of years, you know, obviously if it's, if we have another president Trump term, then I think energy efficiency, you know, I don't want to say, um, you know, can switch the lights off because that's sort of the goal anyway, but, um, but, but, you know, it's going to be very, very difficult environment can, you know, continuing to be very difficult. We already saw, you know, the cafe standards, the energy efficiency in vehicles, we haven't talked about a big part of this and the Trump administration has rolled those back. So clearly this is not going to be a big part of their, um, you know, to be fair, there are a lot of people working hard on energy efficiency, even at the federal level in the U.S. today. Yeah. Um, what they're doing is taking a sort of technology first approach mm. and saying, OK, well, you know, we may not be able to uh, intervene in terms of putting big budgets to work on rollout. But, you know, just in the same way that technology gave fracking, which gave cheap gas um, and therefore, you know, helped to kill coal. Uh, you know, we could see the same things around um, technological approaches to energy efficiency. So it's not a desert, even if President Trump wins another term. But obviously under Biden, you'd probably get a year or or, or so, maybe two years. Be a bit like, um, you know, 
ringing for service at the at the Ritz, you know, for a, for a, there'll be a few a few seconds when nothing happens and then all hell breaks loose um, because there will be big packages, but they will take time to get through the political sausage making, appointing uh, the various political appointees. You know, legislation is not drunk. One of the problems in the U.S. with the Green New Deal that is very popular is that it is not legislation ready. Mm. It is. This is an aspirational. You know, we're going to save the planet, and uh, we're going to also save. Uh, you know, we're going. We're, we're one of the, you know, it, it's a very political statement about. Um, you know, uh, about inclusion, about jobs, guaranteed jobs for all, guaranteed healthcare for all, and so on under a green banner, which is, you know, it is what it is. The problem is it's not ready to sign, you know, that, that bit where the president gets to sign mm-hmm, things and then show everybody. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen day one. So um, reading the tea leaves, I think you've got leaders, you've got laggards. Everybody is in some way moving. But some, I mean, the interesting thing about the EU is just it is not, this is not an aspirational talk. This is legislation that is working its way through the and money working its way through the sausage machine. Look, I, I take your point completely. Um, and uh, when I think about the US and us being globally in the midst of an inflection point, in some ways the US the, is the inflection point in the inflection point. Um, and we're all watching with bated breath to see what plays out over the over the next six months or so. Michael, so we had a, a conversation last week where we were sort of talking about, well, there's all this wonderful uh, excitement and and, uh, and momentum uh, for energy efficiency, um, but then we sort of turned our mind to well, how do you how do you get to that point? How do you get from well, everyone agrees that this is a fabulous idea, it's perfectly suited suited to the moment. Um, how do you get to the, to the point of uh, it being signed by the by the president or the or the governor general or whoever whoever it might be of actually taking that aspiration into into action? Um, what are your view of the, of the key points for um, for advocates, many of whom are obviously um, dialed in to this call, to, to take that uh, that momentum and actually actually get some stuff happening on the ground? Well, so I'm not familiar enough with the situation in Australia um, in terms of um, sort of the mechanics of how laws happen, um, but. You know, you can. I will just generalize. You know, there, there is. I refer to it as the kind of the sausage machine. The sausage machine is not just um, your elected representatives. You know, it starts from the activists, the think tanks, the analysts, um, the progressive business people. You've got some very progressive business people, but obviously Mike Cannon Brooks. But there are plenty of others um, that are pushing and creating the demand. Um, you've, you've got also, by the way, you've got a fabulous investor base with your, you know, very strong finance community and sort of separately, you know, if we weren't, if it hadn't been for COVID and energy efficiency suddenly being so central, I would probably be talking about sustainable finance, green finance, climate bonds, uh, um, you know, uh, sustainable, uh, um, uh, you know, index-related uh, savings, op- you know, all these sorts of things, because there was this kind of growing pressure from the finance community to say, well, you know, what are the risks here? And, of course, for them, it's very concrete. You just have to look at the share prices of all the fossil fuel-intensive industries uh, over the last decade, and that, you know, even if they didn't give a damn about climate change themselves, then that really focuses the mind, the performance of the more progressive and cleaner businesses has just outperformed. So the finance community also provides pressure. So, so the sausage machine comes from society, it comes from fi- business, comes from finance, uh, and so on. What I would say is that the piece that I see missing in many countries, and, um, and, and I, you know, when we spoke, I sort of quizzed you about, my impression is that it's, maybe not missing, but it's, not, but it's insufficiently strong and developed in Australia, is the bit where you actually move from, in a sense, hoping for a good Christmas present to rolling your sleeves up and building the damn uh, treehouse. You know, actually saying, well, who's going to draft the proposal? How much money should go here? What other legislative changes do we need? Who are the people that need to be in the room? Um, and actually constructing the offer and um, you know, I know that in a, it, normally you'd say, well, okay, shouldn't that sort of be, you know, the, the kind of one, one, one way that works is for the opposition to do that 
And then for the government to say, no, that's a load of rubbish, and then steal the bits that are most sensible, steal that's 80% ne- that's never of it happened and before. do it. <laughs> but there is another route, which is that, you know, folks like yourself and the people who are on this call just say, look, we're being, you know, there is a vacuum. I don't want to say we're being let down. There is a vacuum here. We will, you know, we will figure it out analytically. We will also hire the lawyers and get, you know, um, template legislation drafted, and then we will syndicate it around. And you just create this kind of inevitability that at some point that will be adopted, the stars will align. As soon as something becomes seen as inevitable, then, you know, the person who, you know, then, then, then uh, some, you know, leader, leaders will follow because, you know, you know, the old adage about, you know, I must, I must, you know, there go the crowd, I must follow them for I'm their leader. You know, once, once business and civic society and investors and everybody says, right, we've got to be, we're actually really get serious about our building quality because it sucks and people die in the heat waves and then they die uh, when it gets cold as well. And we're going to fix this and here's how to fix it. The bit that's missing, here's how to fix it. How many per year, you know, realistic, hard-nosed legislative interventions, but also standards, bodies, blah, blah, blah. It all fits together. And then it becomes, you know, there are then political rewards for saying, you know, I was the chap who in 2020 or 2021 um, put through the um, Great Homes for Australians Act that has, you know, for over the next two decades transformed our housing stock. I'll probably characterise the situation here in Australia as like incredible enthusiasm and also, and, and there are actually some fantastic plans out there um, from, from a variety of organisations. At the moment that we're at, at right now is uh, that effort coalescing. And in fact, yeah. this event is, is one uh, manifestation of that. And I think it's going to be a very exciting next couple of months as um, we all start working more closely together um, uh, to, um, as you say, have that very clear, uh, concise offering to government about what, what success looks like and how they can make an impact on the ground. No, definitely. And, and, you know, I think there is a moment now, I don't know whether that, you know, obviously you're part of trying to translate that into an Australian context, but there is a moment where you need to create some, this sense of inevitability, this sense of this is so, so darn obvious the fruit is ripe. It is there for, for picking. Um, and there are, you know, obviously, the, you know, who are the, I was going to say there are no losers. The losers are the, the people who would like us to continue to be wasteful, which are, broadly speaking, supply-side fossil fuel producers, of whom you've got a few in Australia. But this is a moment where their voices are being suppressed and dampened uh, by the COVID situation. You know, there's a solution that is good for absolutely everybody else, and it's manifestly obvious, and all the stars are aligned, then I think you've got a moment where you can, you know, bounce, um, bounce your leadership into, into, uh, into leading you. So just finally, Michael, we have gotten the message over the course of the last three hours or so that, you know, there's this, there's this sort of burning platform of, of getting energy efficiency investment out there in a stimulus context. But um, we know that it will remain a massive priority well after we navigate this crisis. And, and your point about needing to reduce the carbon in intensity of every unit of GDP so we can really grow ourselves out of this crisis, but also address some of those longer-term climate challenges is a, is a, is a really strong one. Um, how, do we, how do we kind of get past this initial stage and make energy efficiency an ongoing priority for all of the actors, um, whether you're talking about consumers or, or businesses or financiers or indeed government, um, that we, we absolutely need it to be if we're going to solve our, our climate challenges? I think the, the, the easiest answer is that success breeds success. Mm. Um, you know, what you what you need to do is get, and particularly, by the way, in finance, you know, there is a moment in finance, which we've not talked about a lot, where digit, the combination of digitization and finance um, puts us in a different world from where we were 10 years ago. Uh, and that's also one of the recommendations of the commission. Um, but, you know, why does digitization work with finance? Because there is tons of money, and particularly tons of money in Australia that would chase good returns and the energy separating out the energy efficiency piece from a building or from a business uh, has been historically difficult it's hard to invest in energy efficiency uh, because it is embedded in the fabric of the shopping mall or the home or the 
you know, uh, uh, urea process, whatever it is. Um, now, with um, pervasive data sensors, machine learning, uh, even blockchain to process payments, hands off, and, and all sorts of things, you can now um, you can now financialize energy efficiency in a way that you've never been able to do. And I think that plays to some of the strengths of some very powerful players in the Australian space. And I'm thinking of your super funds, your banks, you know, the Macquarie's of the world and so on. This is a huge opportunity. Why did I jump from, well, how do you get the long-term lock-in? Why did I jump from there to finance? Um, It's because I think if financiers, if investors can see the success, that will breed success. I mean, all these people want to do is cut and paste, right? They want to find a model and then they want to cut and paste and just make it happen faster and faster so they get bigger and bigger year-end bonuses. They're not very, you know, it's not a, it's not a complex model to understand. Um, and I think that's one of the ways. I think there is a piece also around, you know, lock-in with legislation and crucially, crucially, just that cultural piece. You know, if people understood that, Australia is on a journey to great home because, you know, I'm, I'm sure you, you know this better than me. Efficient homes with proper ventilation, et cetera, are much healthier and more comfortable homes. Yes. If everybody understood Australia is on a journey to ultra efficiency, we're going to, you know, lead the world, show the way, or to hell with that, just do it for ourselves. Um, it is, it, it needs to become, you know, wasting uh, energy having a home with drafts in it, having a car that's poorly tuned, you know, or, or an inefficient and overscale and so on, that just has to become the new smoking. And then you've got the lock-in because nobody's going to go back to smoking once they've managed to, you know, once their community has kicked the habit, then that is never going to, that's never going to flip back into some worse state. So you'll get that lock-in. Yeah, and it's something that um, the partners on this event have been reflecting on over the last few days is um, the fact that uh, there's the multiple benefits of energy efficiency that uh, we always talk about, but uh, many Australians have never experienced them, whether they're talking about their own homes. Well, you've got to talk to them in terms of their utility bills hmm. because ultimately that's what we're talking about. Like, okay, look, take the pain now, clear the loft, do whatever. Yeah, it's, it's not the most you know glamorous of work and so on, but by the way, your neighbours are going to be you know looking at you if you don't do it. And then you will enjoy low utility bell, bills, better cover. And here's another thing that has to happen culturally, but there could be a little bit of help from the policymakers, the business community, the investors, the civic groups, and so on like yourselves. Um, energy efficiency, investment, spending, it gets viewed as um, a spend, as a cost. So you'll have people who will say, well, I invested in a new kitchen, but I spent money on insulation. Right. And the difference is critical because if you are in a home and you think, well, I'm going to live here until the kids go to university, whatever, and then I might sell it. And so why would I go spend $15,000 on an upgrade? Uh, That's just going to be a waste. No, because it's going to be an asset. You wouldn't say that about the kitchen you're about to put in, which you are going to recoup when you sell the place. But you do think like that about energy efficiency, better windows, whatever it is. And that's a mindset but it can also be supported by legislative interventions around, you know, how energy efficiency is communicated when homes are bought and sold and those sorts of things. And also the training of, for instance, um, you know, the, the, the real estate sector has to be, you know, trained, i.e. maybe, you know, sort of smacked around and forced to understand that people pay more for efficient, well-performing homes with better moisture control and better all those things that come together, those are assets. They improve value. And once we start to think about that, we think in that way, then suddenly, well, you're not spending. All you're doing is saving money instead of putting the money into your super fund or instead of putting your money into into a savings account, you're putting it into your home, enjoying it, and you'll get it back when you sell it. You know, what's not to like? So there's a lot of a lot of that has to happen. Yeah. Oh, look, and you're bringing us full circle to a conversation we've been having over the course of, of today, um, which is about um, a big part of this is transparency. It's about creating the frameworks, um, uh, understanding what the energy performance of your home is, is means you're, the, you're more likely to invest in it or indeed if you're, if you're selling it or, or renting it out, that becomes a, a, a an element of the value um, that you, yes. you, you're willing to, uh, to put out there. Well, Michael, uh, we're out of time. Uh, I want to thank you for your time today and, and your leadership 
on this topic. I, I want to close by noting that in a recent op-ed you penned for Bloomberg, you said that for the energy efficiency sector, opportunities arrived. Don't let it slip past. Well, I can and say, Michael, that, that we certainly don't intend to let that happen here in Australia. So uh, looking forward to keeping in touch and, and uh, realising the vision of a lot of the stuff that you've been outlining here today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time. And I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, you know, good luck. You know, this is, this is the moment. Don't let it slip. All right. Well, that brings us to the close of today's summit, but uh, we're not done, not by a long shot. Um, The push for an efficient recovery was building momentum before this summit um, with a range of incredible proposals from a diverse range of organisations. Tomorrow, ACOS, AI Group, AEC and Property Council will be releasing a joint statement that captures the outcomes of this summit. Uh, We ask that you work with us to promote that far and wide. Uh, We are also cataloguing contributions to this national and and global conversation, as we've just heard, at eec.org.au forward slash efficient recovery. There you'll find links to position papers from the many Australian organisations setting out a positive vision for an efficient recovery, international reports like the one from the IEA's Global Commission that provides context and rationale for this effort, and details on how you can access a briefing for your organisation from an expert on the campaign for an efficient recovery. And rest assured, you'll be hearing more from all 30 organisations that have partnered on this event and I'm sure many more beyond. Thank you and we'll talk again soon. 